And as I have shared earlier, we're taking a break from Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, because of Advent Sunday. In the next four weeks, we're going to look toward the light of Christmas dawning upon us with the hope that that brings the glad tidings, as King James calls it, right? And so we're going to head to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts here as we gather together around your word. Your word didn't come from anybody on earth. It has its origin in heaven. You have breathed your words of life into us to raise us to new life, that we be new creations, God, born again in a life that can never die. We thank you for eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and your great love. Now, may we be in the right posture to hear that still, small voice that speaks very loudly through your word, not to harm us, but to prosper us, to give us a hope in a future. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. When I was in grade school, uh, on occasion, we would vacation in Florida, uh, living in uh, New England, it gets cold in the winter, and so at winter break, Christmas break, sometimes we take a two-day drive, and we go down the East Coast, uh, fond memories for sure. Uh, one of those trips, we stopped in Virginia, a well-known tourist attraction called Shenandoah Caverns, and we took a tour there of the underground caves, beautiful crystallized formations, Stalactites, remember from science class? I believe I got a picture there. Wow. Huge, like, icicle-like uh, for, uh, uh, formations that hang from the uh, roof of the cavern there. Just beautiful. And so uh, I wish that was what I remembered, but sadly, I have a memory of something else. And we got into an elevator and we go down about 250 feet. The reason I know that is because I went on their website to, to read about uh, the, what, what actually they do. And so that's what we did. And uh, the elevator opens up into the cavern, and you're invited into a boat to go out on that, uh, the natural underground springs there. And it's quite a little, I, I wasn't fond of boats and water uh, before I knew how to swim. And so that was strike one there. But in the middle of the uh, water time, uh, everything stopped and uh, the guide counted down, three, two, one, and they turned the lights off. Now, I'm sure he must have given a warning. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, but, you know, he's like, put your hand in front of your face, folks. Now, that's dark, isn't it? And the, all the adults, they seem so entertained. I was not. <laughs> I, and I clearly made that known. Hmm. All 
caps dark, man. You honestly, you cannot get any darker than that. Oh, but you can, according to the Bible. There's a deeper kind of darkness, one that blinds the mind and endangers the eternal soul. To be without light, the gospel puts you in the category of lost and in the dark. In fact, it's the Bible's most favorite way of describing the state of the world and the character of the gospel. Dark world and the light of truth that sets our hearts free. In fact, uh, there's one scripture before we even get to Isaiah, our text, where Jesus tells you the real reason for the season. He just lays it out there. In John chapter 12, he says, I've come into the world. That would be Christmas, right? Here's the reason. One sentence, very simple theology here from the Son of God. The reason I've come into the world, I've come as a light so that nobody who believes in me should stay in darkness. And when the Bible speaks of being without light, he's talking about groping around, not knowing your way. And bad things happen when you don't have light. You trip over things. You hurt yourself. Uh, at night is the time when uh, evildoers do their thing. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, children of the night, children of darkness as they're called. And it just means wandering, uh, really endangered. It represents evil and hate and error, darkness. And then into the world's darkness, Jesus said, the reason I came he calls himself the light of the world. And he came in to light, give us the light of life as it's called there in John chapter 1. And when we talk about the gospel being light, as we're going to open up here in Isaiah chapter 9 with a prophecy about a light that would dawn upon the region of Galilee of all places 700 years before. That's pretty amazing stuff, prophecy. But when we're talking about light from the Bible's point of view, it's about love, the warmth of life, love and truth and goodness and clarity and safe passage. This is what the light, light of wisdom and knowledge. And uh, this is what Jesus came to bring. And so, as I said, the next few Sundays, we're going to kind of focus on the light of Christmas and let the Holy Spirit renew that hope and comfort and joy and peace. That's uh, all of those uh, virtues and those beautiful descriptions are a byproduct of what Christmas is all about. And so we're going to go to that well-known prophecy now in Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to read through and have the context for those wonderful words of wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The titles of the Messiah really have a context that's important. And so we love context here. We go verse by verse. And so we'll, we'll walk through what leads up to those famous words that appear in Handel's Messiah, their wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Just beautiful words. And so we begin there with a nevertheless, <laughs> verse 1. Nevertheless, because in Isaiah 8, he's talking about adversity and trouble and turmoil and pain and chastisement. 
But he says, but on the other hand, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past. The Lord humbled the land of Zebulun, a region there by Galilee, and the land of Naphtali, another region uh, that is right in the Galilee area. But in the future, he will honor Galilee proper there of the Gentiles. A lot of non-Jewish people lived in Galilee because it's a border town. It borders on uh, Syria and Lebanon. And so there were a lot of Gentiles, just words, the word that means nations. So he will honor this place called Galilee by the way of the sea. We know what he's talking about, the Sea of Galilee. The Bible calls even freshwater sea. Uh, along the Jordan River, right there, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And he continues on. You have enlarged the nation of Israel. You've increased their joy. That's kind of an odd thing to say at their time of his in history. But in the future, they, they rejoice be, before you as people rejoice at the harvest time. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder after they win the war. For back in the day, the same was true of Midian's defeat. We'll talk about that reference there to Gideon in Judges 6 and 7. Back when you shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor snapped in two. Verse 5, an obscure verse. It sounds graphic and nasty, but it's really good news. I'll explain it. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be his responsibility. And he will be called, these are titles of his character, of his reign, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his government, the greatness of his government and the peace of his reign, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne. He is related by blood through Mary, who's a descendant of King David, just as King David was promised. One of your grandsons in the flesh will reign on a throne forever, and there it is. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, goodness, moral purity. Finally, from that time on and forever. That's a long time. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In case you're wondering, oh, is this going to happen? Just know this. The passionate determination, the most high God's heart will make sure and guarantee that every last word of this prophecy will come to pass. Amen? Amen. So there are three truths here that really... Uh, in these prophecies really make Christmas Christmas, really. And we're, they divide quite nicely into our three talking points this morning. And if you're taking notes, note takers number one, the first couple verses there, a light has dawned, right? A light has dawned into our darkness. That's Christmas. And then number two, verses three through five, will be joy has come. Peace has been established on our behalf. That's Christmas, right? And number three, 
What makes it all possible? We wrap up with a child has been born. A son has been given. Two natures to the Messiah, human and divine, the God-man comes to save the world. And so now I'd like you to notice, maybe you did notice that the verbs being used, and this is often the case with the Lord, he, he speaks of something future as if it's already happened, and he uses the verbs past tense. And so he's trying to say, from my point of view, it's as good as done. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this because it's as good as already done because God has willed it to be so. Therefore, it cannot be undone because there's no wisdom, no plan, and no insight that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 30. And so, yeah, past tense, like he says to you, he says, when you come to Christ and God raises you to new life, puts a spirit in you, he has seated you, past tense, in heavenly places. What he's saying is when you come to know him, boom, you're in. And there's nothing that can undo it. You're already there. Now you're called to work out your salvation, walk it out with a great soberness and seriousness because it's God who's doing this work. It's already and not yet, as the theologians like to say. So we're going to dive in now to the dark, dark region of the world that's in for the biggest surprise ever. Who would have ever thought Galilee is where God is going to decide to spend most of his earthly life? Nobody saw that coming, and that is one of the reasons for great, like, astounding joy. It just adds to the greatness that God would take somebody who's insignificant, a place that's not respected, a place where people are downtrodden and hurting and always used to gloom and fear and shame and disgrace, and always the object of ridicule. Galileans always the object of ridicule, and God is drawn to that as he is today. He's drawn to the brokenhearted. He's drawn to those who have very little and struggle and are the object of other people's disdain. He comes calling, doesn't he? So we'll dive in to that dark, dark place that's going to get uh, a beautiful sunrise, S-U-N-R-I-S-E. And it's okay to laugh once in a while in church. It's really, especially when the guy is trying really hard to be creative. Sunrise, S-U-N, right? Not sun. Oh, no. No wonder you didn't laugh. I messed it up. The sunrise, S-O-N. <laughs> Oh, I don't know how you keep coming back, but you do. <laughs> and so here we go. I'll paraphrase this. So he says, nevertheless, even though this region has been taken a beating, a well-deserved one at that, there'll be an end to your doom and gloom for those at the end of their rope. In the past, he brought the land low. That's what it means. It brought those people low who lived in those regions, Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he's going to lift you guys up. See, that's part of the deal. Sometimes he has to lay you low before 
He can exalt you and raise you up when you find favor. And so, yeah, he says, uh, and that'll happen in this region called Galilee with lots of Gentile people living there by the lake along the river Jordan. People living in darkness indeed will see a brilliant light like a beautiful sunrise uh, over the valley of the shadow of death. They will fear no evil in that day because God is with them. That's an amazing truth. And so, yeah, we see here the land of gloom and doom is going to get a shock and be known for something other than uh, a war-torn area of depressed people and economy and backwards thinking because that's what it was once known for. But when you say Galilee in the future, the whole earth will think of the Son of God walking on that lake there, the Sea of Galilee, as it's called. And so location, 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 as (laughs) we like to say, and this was a bad one. It was a precarious location. Because, uh, well, let me show you the Galilee. You see the circle there. The Galilee was in a place on the northernmost border, right? If you go any further north, you're going to be in enemy territory, actually. And what happened was is that if any army would invade, including Assyria, and they came in and exiled the, the Israelites out of their promised land because they had turned away from the Lord uh, or Babylon coming in. They had to come in through the gate to get to Jerusalem. They didn't just come cut across straight, as you might think. Uh, They had to come up and down into first brunt, the first to bear the, 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 the boots trampling over them were the Galileans. There was no other way to get to Jerusalem. You had to come that way. And so because of that, they really bared the burden of constant uh, being trampled down and war-torn and depressed and all of this. And uh, so this is really what led to them being so depressed and living in darkness. And the other thing was that because they were on the border with Gentile uh, nations, uh, they had really watered down their faith and turned their backs on the right way to worship God. They were not practicing uh, true blue Judaism there. I mean, think about it. What did Jesus come across there in the Galilee? He came across 2,000 swine. What are swine doing in Israel, in the promised land where Jews were prohibited from eating pork. You see, because there were Gentiles there and there were uh, uh, Israelites who were not worshiping the Lord per se there. There was a lot of that kind of thing. And so thank you for that. We can go back to our uh, text. Uh, there was a lot of uh, just godlessness And uh, the Lord had promised them, the Jews, listen, 1,400 years before Christ, when they got established, he said, I'm giving you this promised land, but don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. Because if, if you start to act like the rest of the people who worship gods made of wood and prostitute themselves, the Bible's word, 
in sexual immorality and worship Baal, which was uh, essentially uh, that kind of immorality mixed into religious worship. He said, if you keep doing that, then I'm going to chastise you guys, and you can't have the promised land and act like that and turn your back on me. And so he warned them for 700 years. That is the most patient and kind warning ever. And then he tells them in Isaiah chapter 8, he says, man, okay, it's time. Assyria is going to come in and trample you down again, and he's going to take you out. But here's the good news. The good news is, Yes, I keep my promise that I will chastise those who forsake me, but I will not forsake and abandon them as they have done because I remain faithful. And so he has this beautiful other side of it. He says, yes, you're going to get a very bad spanking, but no, it's not going to be forever that one day the very place that all you people are despised and hurting and uh, just at the bottom, you're going to have cause for great joy. And then the other thing was they, they were despised and looked down on upon, uh, from the Judean Jews, the Jerusalem people. Uh, they would look at the, them as hillbillies who had forsaken uh, the true way and uh, they were disdained. They were people like those hillbilly fishermen of the Sea of Galilee area. They even despised their accent. And by the way, when Nathaniel hears that the Messiah has been found and he's from Nazareth, Galilee, he says, can anything good come out of the hillbilly hills of Galilee and Nazareth? And they're like, well, come and see. Check this out. Answer, yeah. When God's involved, something good can come out of what everybody's despised and looks down on. And Paul the Apostle will look around at the Corinthians and say, why are you so goo-goo-eyed at everybody who has money and lives a life of prestige, who always looks down on people of lower class, as they would say? Because he says, remember, dear brothers, that few of you are wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're so wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Now, who, who might that be? Peter, James, and John. They didn't have money to go see an orthodontist, okay? So their teeth are all crooked. They didn't go to school. They're uneducated fishermen with the disdain of the Pharisees and the rest of Israel, right? And who's Mary Magdalene? Some homewrecker. Who is she? She's going to be a star of Resurrection Sunday, along with Peter, James, and John. Nobodies. Nobodies. They used to make fun of the way they talked in the hillbilly hills of Galilee. Their accent, right? Do you remember Peter's warming his hands by the fire? And he's ready to deny the Lord. And he starts saying, hey, no, I don't know him. And she says, you look familiar. You were with those Galileans. Your accent gives you away. And he said, no, I ain't. You know, whatever. 
No, I ain't, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so listen, seated at the king's table in the palace of heaven are former thieves, sexually immoral people. Jesus looked at the, the robed good people of Jerusalem and said, you know who's getting to heaven before you? Prostitutes and tax collectors who they considered the lowest of low. Jesus said, oh, they'll be at the table, but guess where you'll be? Cast out, because you think you're so good and you're all that, and God should be happy to have you on his team. Oh, they already came to faith because they figured out something here. They had been humbled. They were on their back, and sometimes when you're on your back, there's only one place to look, up, and they came to faith. And so, yeah, people... Walking in darkness of seeing a great light. And I'll say, the great light who calls himself the light of the world, wrapped up in human flesh and blood, comes to live where he comes to live. Not in Alexandria yeah, or Carthage or Rome. He picks the backwoods of Galilee. So when he turns 30, he moves from lower Galilee to upper Galilee, to Capernaum where he does 80% of his teaching and his miracles there in fulfillment of this text. Now, I have it here for you, and it should sound familiar there. I believe it's in um, Matthew chapter 4. Now, this is Matthew, 700 years after Isaiah said, Hey, Galilee, heads up. Now he's in Galilee. And Matthew wants to tell you, this wasn't an accident. He ended up in Galilee, folks. <laughs> Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, by the sea, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Oh, what a coincidence. To fulfill what was said through the prophet 700 years before. Men wrote the Bible. Uh, no, they didn't. The Holy Spirit breathed on them, and holy men of old wrote down and spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. So he goes on to say, as Isaiah says, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the wave of the seas, quoting Isaiah, people living in darkness, they've seen a great light, living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then in order to make sense and benefit from the light, one word, Jesus starts saying, have a change of heart. And the light will come in and replace the darkness. And now you'll have life instead of condemnation, which is darkness, and judgment, which is darkness, and the wrath of God, which is darkness of darkness, a darkness that can be felt, quote, to quote the Bible. And so there you have it. They're fulfilled before our very eyes. And so light in dark places, yeah, he chose that dark, dark place because the darker the better. If you light a light... I light a candle in broad daylight above the Shenandoah Caverns outside in the parking lot. Yeah, well, it's a flame. It's giving forth light. But then light that candle down when he flips off the light down in the middle of the cavernous cave there where there is no light. So God has just wanted to go for it, to make the light even shine brighter, to bring a joy because they're so desperate and they're so lonely and they're so depressed that when he comes to them, he's well-received. And he was there in, for the most part, in Capernaum. And so the light comes. The light is dawned. 
and the blind are seeing. And so I just one last thing here. Blind Bartimaeus, he's been blind all his life. Jesus says this in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Hey, if you believe in me, you'll never walk in darkness. John 9, he says, and let me prove my big claim to you. And he grabs a guy born blind in darkness and says, watch what I can do. I can deliver on the claim to keep you from walking in spiritual darkness by showing you I have the power to open this man's eyes. And he did. And he saw. And he came out of darkness into light. And Jesus says, just in case you're having trouble believing my claims, voila, that's what he does. And so light dawns. How about your heart? Has the light dawned because you've repented and received and now you're walking in life that the Bible says is truly life. And so moving on, verses three through five, I love this. You will increase Israel in size and increase their joy, the nation, kind of like the joy of Thanksgiving harvest time. They have um, festivals in the fall. One is called the Feast of Tabernacles, but the Hebrew word is Sukkot. Uh, it's really like Thanksgiving when there's a lot of joy, or joy like when the soldiers win the battle and they're dividing up the plunder uh, because you will have broken the yoke of the oppressor like you did by destroying all those armies of Midian. Midian and the warrior's boots. We're going to talk about that. So we went from a light has dawned Christmas to uh, the natural consequences of light coming into a dark place. Joy, you're happy, you know, a dark place, like feeling lost and, and desperate. I mean, can you imagine the joy? And this is part of Christmas of somebody adrift on a raft in the sea, as so many times you hear about these things and watch a movie about it, you know, and then day 33, the rescue helicopter comes and sights them and they know they're seen and spotted. What kind of joy? There's no words for that kind of joy. And this is what he's talking about, this mind-blowing joy, like back in the days of Midian in Judges, there... Uh, chapter 6 and 7, Gideon is leading. He's just a weakling of a guy, but that's God's point. He's going to go to the weakest guy in the neighborhood to deliver Israel from 135,000 Midian soldiers. 135,000. And all poor Midian has is 30,000. And, and, and he's like, how's that ever going to work? And God's like, oh, it's going to get even worse because I don't need 30, so tell everybody who is scared and wants to go home to go home. So 22,000 or so left, right? So he's down to about 10,000 people, and he says, what am I going to do? 10,000 soldiers against 135,000, God. And God goes, oh, it's going to get worse. Because <laughs> I don't need 10,000 guys. I don't really need any, but for you, how about 300? So he goes, 300, it could never, that would take a miracle. God goes, oh, finally. <laughs> finally, I got you people to a place where you're not saying, well, thankfully I had this. That's why God's always busy stripping away things so that we'll finally go, aha, it was God after all. And so 
God takes those 300 guys and couldn't even tie their shoes. Uh, and and there, there wasn't even a single uh, blow of a sword, nothing. But God threw the 135,000 guys into a confused, frenzied panic, and they started slaughtering one another. You see, what kind of joy was that as Israel's like, what's happening here? We had 300 guys and we didn't even fight them and they're fighting themselves. What kind of joy would that be? See, he's saying the joy of the coming Messiah into the world is going to produce this crazy dreamlike, are you kidding me, kind of joy. And like back in the days of harvest time or when you're dividing the plunder and not the plunder. <laughs> you know, when you're not the plunder, it's a good thing. Amen? You're dividing it. And so that's what he's talking about. I want to point out before we dive into the wonderful Counselor Almighty God section uh, that notice the emphasis on the joy and the blessing is on the Lord here. And that's what happens to us sometimes we forget. So he says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Now, it's nice to have population growth after you've been decimated, decimated, decimated. Instead of dwindling, now you're flourishing. It's like, wow, what's up with that? And it's really nice to have uh, peace and joy. And you're thankful for it. But it's the God who brought the blessing that is emphasized as the source of joy. It's really nice to not to be going to hell, but we're not as happy about the fact that we've escaped condemnation as we are so grateful and happy about knowing the one who brought that to pass, who made that uh, possible for us. Do you see the difference? It's really nice to be happy this morning for your good health, but it's better to be thankful to the God who made you to be healthy today. You see, there's a difference. So he, he snapped their cord, and when the Messiah comes, the big deal is the yoke of oppression and not the Midianites, the devil and his demons. This dark world, our own sinful nature, death itself that will come calling. He says, I got good news. Like in the days when you snapped the yoke and the bar of oppression over people's captive lives, that the Messiah comes and he breaks every fetter, to quote the Bible about Jesus. He calls us out of slavery. He sets our hearts free, our lives. We can breathe again. We can live life that is truly life. What do we sing? We sing, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. I can tell you, a broken yoke. You want to talk about the Messiah coming and snapping people's oppressive yokes of addiction, sexual immorality, oh, generation after generation of oppression and emptiness and barrenness and shame. And he comes in and the light shines over them and he snaps every chain. In two, and it says it's free. That's Christmas. Christmas is a rescue. Uh, 
pursuit of us. He comes in to rescue. That's what it's all about. Let me uh, address verse 5. What about the warrior's boot being tossed in the fire along with any um, bloodstained uniform from an army soldier, cadet, boom, into the fire? He's saying, when Messiah comes, he brings peace. And you won't be needing any war equipment, the warrior's boots, all anything that has a vestige, a remnant uh, on the remnant, the bloody uh, um, evidence of violence and corruption that causes war, throw it in the fire. You're done with it. Because Messiah's goal, when he appears at the second coming, there is no more war. I love what Psalm 46 says. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. It's the same thought here. You won't, you know, Take the war cleats and, and the bloody, sorry, fatigues or whatever you find, throw them in the fire because, you know, let it light your, your marshmallow roast, you know, because there will never, ever be war again. In fact, Isaiah chapter 2, he's already said this, the Lord will come, he will appear and settle all disputes. The instruments of war will be turned into agricultural tools Instead of, uh, because nation will no longer fight against nation, nor will anyone ever train for war again. And it trickles down even to the animal kingdom. When he appears, he will set up a kingdom for a thousand years called the millennial kingdom. He calls it paradise on earth, Jesus does, where even the animals are at peace with one another. I check this out here about the animals. The wolf's going to live with the lamb. Not the lamb chop, right? <laughs> the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion together, and a little child is going to lead them around. All right? Because there are, we are the administration. Christ rules on a, on a throne. He's visible to the world. And there are human beings. Curse lifted, they live a thousand years. There's no, no death like that. It's reversed. And so they're procreating those people who survived the tribulation, who are saved. They begin the new kingdom. And so they're going to have kids, and they're going to be babies, and they're going to play by a serpent's hole, and they're going to stick their hand in a viper's nest, but the vipers are going to be friendly. Now, you know what? I would do with no vipers, <laughs> you know? But he says, listen, they're going to be fun to... to to have. <laughs> I'll have a lion, but I'm not having no viper. All right, verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy my holy mountain. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Jeremiah 31. In that day when I appear, nobody's going to be running around going, hey, to your neighbor. Hey, you gotta, do you know the Lord? Yeah, because everybody will know me. From the least to the greatest, the whole earth will be able to see God in a body seated on a throne in the capital of the world, which will be Jerusalem. Well, how is all this going to happen? Well, a child. It's all up to one little baby who happens to be born, God. Let's talk about this. A human child is born, verse 6. A human child is born, a divine son is given, and the governing of the world will be his responsibility. He will be known, and in the Hebrew it says, 
a wonder of a counselor. Amazing title to start with. Wow. The omnipotent God, the eternal Father, heaven's ambassador of peace. His greatness, peaceful reign will never cease. And he carries on in King David's legacy there. Let's talk about uh, these titles. Now, first of all, uh, the, the human child, he is. He's born of Mary, a human being. He's 100% human. And because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, he's 100% God. And, and, you know, why did he have to do that? That's the only combination that would work. He could have sent an angel, but guess what? Angels don't bleed, and so they can't die. And so since his, he came to die for our sins, to free us, to give us forgiveness and eternal life, he has to pay with a death. So whoever stands in for us has to have a beating heart and has to be able to die. And angels can't do that. And that's the reason why he couldn't just be the son of God appearing to die. Because same problem, no blood, no death. How do you kill the son of God in the fullness of who he is without a human body? So he says, okay, I got it. I will be sinless. And the reason it couldn't just be a child without the divine part is because a sinner cannot rescue sinners. If he has debt of his own, which every man does, then how are you going to bail somebody else out and say, hey, I'll take care of your debts? Well, dude, who's going to take care of yours? Oh, that's the problem. So what we need is somebody who can die, a human being. But he has to be perfect and sinless so that he can offer himself as a sacrifice full of holiness and righteousness and goodness. Now, that's a sacrifice. He can pay. I'll pay my goodness, my righteousness on their behalf. And so he has to be what we call the God-man. That's the solution. And he ends up being a descendant of King David. And that's the whole Christmas uh, thing for sure. He tells, uh, he tells Mary, listen, you're going to have a child but he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the one born of you will be called the Son of God. A child through Mary, a son through God. Together they come in to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so he's called. Now, when a king came to power and was coronated, he would have phrases to describe. He'd give himself titles to describe the kind of reign he's expecting, his character, his kingdom. And so in keeping with the tradition of kings, God says, and I've got a few phrases to tell you about King Messiah. And the first one, which blows my mind every time I think of it coming in first place, is a wonderful counselor, somebody who, as I said, it's the wondrous counselor, uh, a wonder of a counselor because the counselor in this case is God. And in Christ, the Messiah, lie all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the embodiment of Christ. So whatever Christ will say will be life and light and truth. No wonder everybody, quote, Luke 19, the crowd hung on his every word. Why? They're hearing the audible voice of God, the one who spoke. And the universe leapt into existence. Colossians 1, verse 15 says, Jesus made 
everything. He created all things. So now they're hearing the unfiltered voice of God. Well, no wonder it says they were astonished. The word means to have the breath knocked out of you when he opened his mouth. Well, because they're listening to God. You know, I love the story of John chapter 7. When the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders say, it's time, go arrest that fellow and bring him in here. So they go out to the temple courts where Jesus is speaking, where God's voice is going forth. And the guys come back without Jesus. And they said, we told you to go arrest that man. And you come back here empty handed. What's going on? And they say, have you ever heard him? They say, no one ever spoke like this man. And for good reason. Because nobody's ever heard the audible voice of God speak. And it would blow people away. It would blow people away. So this counselor, man, he doesn't charge by the hour. You just can get whatever you need from him. The wisdom. There's no, uh, there's no problem too big for him. He will comfort any hurt. He will heal any wound. He'll untangle any confusion. He'll solve any dilemma. He'll light any dark path and lead you into the light. That's what he does. And I love that he puts him first. It's just that every time he gets you out of a jam and gives you an aha moment, you're just like, wow, God is speaking. He speaks in marriage dilemmas and parenting problems, problems with strained relationships, the secret to happiness. He tells you the right counsel. What can your friends do? They love you, but they're, they're going to fall short. They can only give you a friend's counsel, right? How about the devil? You know, he's in the counseling business too. He'll tell you exactly what he thinks you should do. Do it. Are you kidding me? You want to? The world's cool with it. No one's a, it will only affect you. Come on. Eve, doesn't it look beautiful? It's delicious. It's good for you. It'll bring you wisdom. That's his counsel. His counsel leads to death. And there is a way that seems right to a man. But that counsel leads to death. The counsel that's filled with wonder and awe comes from God's heart who knows you. He knows how you're wired. He knows where all the wires got tangled up somewhere. And he'll undo it for you. You just bring your heart to him. And he'll give you rest because he's the wonderful counselor. And then almighty God, how's the child to grow up to be almighty God? Answer, you'd have to be born that way to begin with. And he was. Let me show you the John uh, verse there. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whatever the Word is, we know it's God. Okay? Right there, established, verse 1. The Word, it's God. The Word, who's God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you see that? God in an earth suit. That's exactly what he is. He poured himself. He stamped himself into flesh and blood, and you get Jesus when Philip, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he's freaking out. He says, give us a glimpse of God. Show us the Father, Jesus, please. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you? And still you don't know me? 
Whoever's seen me has seen God the Father. That's an amazing thing to say. In him was the fullness of deity in bodily form. And then I just want to say this. He better be God. All the claims he's making. How can anybody but God say, hey, if you believe in me, even if you die, you're going to live. Who can say that? A nice rabbi? Oh, just believe in me and you'll live forever? No, no, no. You'd have to be more than a, a mere man. You'd have to be God. How about I can satisfy the desires, your hunger, your thirst of every human being who's ever lived on the object. Your heart has a, has a me-shaped void. How can a man say that? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. Whether it's China, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's a thousand years from now, wherever you are, if anybody gets together in my name, guess what? I'm there. How can a man do that? Of course, he better be God, and he is God. And that's one of the things about his claims and his miracles that evidence that he follows up those claims and can do uh, those kinds of miracles. And so uh, balanced with this powerful God, who's nothing's too difficult for him, is eternal father. Jesus is not the father, but he demonstrates the essence of the father. This is a title of his character, that his reign as Messiah will be paternal. The father is not the son. The son is not the Holy Spirit. They are three and one together like body, soul, and spirit. My body is not my soul. My soul is not my spirit. They're all distinct, but they're so united as one, you see. And so he's saying, my beautiful balance here. You can think of almighty God, omnipotent God. He spoke in the universe. Bam! Thunder and lightning and roll, peals of thunder and all of that, right? With a dad's heart. With a dad, a good dad. A kind, tender-hearted dad who's for you. Um, I get emotional even about this dumb little illustration. I just saw a guy in Home Depot with his boy. I'm only a young teen, you know, and he had his arm around him. I'm behind them. And the dad keeps pulling him in and kissing him on the head. And the kid, he looks up. You can tell the boy likes it, right? But he's not going to let anybody else know that he likes it. So he pulls away a little, and dad pulls him and kisses him on the head. And he pulls away, and dad pulls him in again. And you could, I looked at the dad's face. He loved that boy. He loves this boy. Multiply that, he says. Your almighty God, who took on flesh and blood to save the world, he's mighty. He is the Lord. But he's a dad who loves you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to be eternally pulling you closer, kissing on your head. I hope you like that kind of thing, because you're, you're in for it. What happens when the prodigal son comes running up with his long-winded speech? Father, I have sinned against heaven. He interrupts him, bowls him over, kisses him all over the place. Knocks him over and lavishes his love on him. Eternal. Eternal. It doesn't stop. Ceaseless affection for you as a dad. He's your dad. And then finally, Prince of Peace. 
just love this one too. But before he can bust through the clouds and put an end to all the threats to peace, and that's what you have to do. Uh, in the world, they're like, you know, who would Jesus bomb? You know, it's a bumper sticker. Who would Jesus bomb? Well, you should read Revelation chapter 6 through 19 because he will bomb all those who rejected his first offer for amnesty to come to him and have life at his own expense. He will take away and obliterate with a vengeance that only God can manifest any threat to goodness, justice, truth, light. Any threat to that will take away peace. So he has to come on like gangbusters and wipe it out. Oh, yeah, not before first wiping his own son out so that anybody in that mess can come and have life and find shelter and refuge. But those who don't want refuge and still want to be a threat to peace, you're going to have to be taken out. You need to be removed from the situation forever. That's the idea. So he comes, but before that piece, the main piece that he comes first, the most important piece is to reconcile us. The sinless one who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf that we might become reconciled to God and the most important piece in the world. Because it won't matter if you don't have the peace of the first coming, you definitely don't get the peace of the second because you're reconciled to God. Jesus paid your debts and reconciled to you. My sister, who's visiting this morning and is in this very service, sent me a text this weekend. And I said, I'm going to use this. And she said, maybe in a sermon or something. And I said, you know what? There might be a place here. I don't know. And so duck, check this out, this receipt. Salvation. Jesus paid it all. All right, love it. Sin paid, shame paid, regret paid, past mistakes, unforgiveness. Well, the list could go on for miles. Hurt and anger, sexual immorality, hypocrisy, falling short, not loving him, loving stuff instead. Come on, I mean, just make the list. And, and that tab, oh, who was huge, debt paid. And then, you know what? Even though I've been saved for a long, long time, many decades now, my eye went straight to that column, the grand total. And my eye was, and I looked at the zeros and, and I, I still smiled. I was relieved. I was like, I love to, you can remind me of that. I want, I'm going to keep that in my wallet. You know, and so when they ask me for receipts here, I'm going to pull it out and just remind myself, my debts are paid and your debts. And that's what brings peace. It is finished was his cry. Thank you for that receipt. And so that's just a beautiful thing is he came to give us his peace. He became the sin. And by his stripes on his back, we are made right with God. We are made whole. We're saved. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes on the back, we are made whole. I close with this about wanting peace, but having it escape you for years. 
uh, Japanese psychologist, really, he let me know. He was kind of an author and a little bit well-known in Japan, was seated next to me on a flight to Tokyo. And we were talking, and he's telling me all about his life. And he's just, even though he was a psychologist, he was saying how he was still felt empty. And I, and I said, oh, don't get me started. You know, so I said, sir, I could tell you why. And he's listening to me and he scared me so much. And this is really what I recall, because if I was drinking a beverage, it would have gone all over the place because it was so uh, shocking. The way Japanese people, they, there's, there's the language even, it's just staccato, domo, arigato, kuzarenshita, right? And that's how they talk. So even in English, it's a little bit boom, you know? And so he's thinking and I'm talking and he's just, he has already described his empty life and I started talking about the peace of God. And I just started talking about describing it. It passes all understanding, all your sins or all your bad um, regrets and your mistakes. And he takes away fears and all of a sudden he just fires up. I want that peace. But so loud and so abrupt. I was just in my own little world just on a, yeah, and it's a peace that passes. I want that peace. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sir, calm down. It's 14 hours you're stuck next to me, you know, whatever it was. I'm not going anywhere, so we'll talk about that. I get to pray with him for perfect peace, and he's like, ah, oh, already I feel more better. Yeah, he felt better, and it's just, praise the Lord, amen. So I close with asking you, I mean, do you want that peace? <laughs> you can have that peace, you know? And a lot of Christians, come on, Christians, you lose it. You have it, and then you lose it. You have it, and then it goes out the window somewhere. Come on. When you have anxiety, the Bible says, disallow those thoughts. Think about your wonderful counselor. Bring your fears to him. Cast your cares upon him because he cares about you. He cares for you, right? And then when you're thankful and you're praying about it, instead of worrying about it, his peace will come. And it says that peace that will guard your heart, he says it won't even make sense. You'll just enjoy it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great love. We pray that you would bless our time as we now Sing this closing song and let you seal your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.